Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. Joining me this week as my very special guest is Doug Pollitt of Pollitt & Go in Toronto. Doug's father, Murray, a legend in the precious metals industry, founded the firm, and Doug now carries on the family legacy from his office in Bay Street. Now, predictably, the topic at hand is gold. And with Doug's decades of experience, both from a practical standpoint and through his involvement in the financing side of the business, there are a wealth of subjects for the two of us to discuss. Now, Doug can't talk about specific names in the podcast, but you can contact him via Pollitt & Co.'s website, which is pollitt.com, that's two L's, two T's. And you can follow him on Twitter, where his handle is Douglas Pollitt. Again, two L's, two T's. So with all that being said, please enjoy my conversation with Doug Pollitt. Well, Doug, welcome to the podcast. It's, uh, I'm glad we finally got to make this happen, despite me letting you down on several occasions. Thanks for your patience. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Listen, there's, there's an awful lot to talk about always in the space that you and I find ourselves immersed in. But I want to actually start for people that aren't familiar with you with a bit of your background, your family background, because, you know, in Canadian mining circles, you know, the Pollitt name is an absolutely revered one for many, many reasons. So perhaps you could kick us off with a little kind of family background. Yeah, okay. Um, so I, I suppose uh, we can start with my old man, Murray. He might have been considered the Bay Street's original gold bug. He, he cut his teeth back in the 60s when the gold was still pegged to the dollar. And I guess his main investment theme back then was uh, that peg was going to be broken and we should bet against the dollar. It was sacrilegious at the time. Right. Um, you know, everyone was going around with investing in bonds with we're wearing pocket watches and three hour lunches. And uh, and here was this kid saying, you know, the, the world as we know it from a monetary perspective was going to you know, come apart at the seams. You know, nowadays, gold bugs are fairly ubiquitous. You know, back then, it was a heretical thing to say. And so, you know, lo and behold, uh, uh, his, his prediction came to pass. And anyway, then I guess I came along. And so when people ask me why I'm a gold bug, I attribute it to a genetic defect is what it is. I, I was first up in, I sucked into the mining world fairly early. I was up in Val d'Or building core racks when I was a kid, 16 or something like that, working with prospectors with no toes and no teeth. And just kid from Toronto, and uh, they gave me a pretty rough ride, but it was a oh, good learning experience. Became a mining engineer, or at least took mining engineering at McGill. Worked the summers. Call myself a fake mining engineer because I never really, you know, I had a proper mining engineering job after uh, you know out of school. Got into the programming world. Was, became a software engineer. Did some, I guess it's called AI now, but uh, vision systems and what have you. And uh, twenty some odd years ago. Um, I got sucked back down to the racket downtown. Um, we're, we're a small brokerage firm, small office in Toronto, smaller office in Montreal, basic old-fashioned uh, brokerage business, you know, just agency trading, a bit of banking, trying to be honest brokers, old-fashioned way. So that's a, that's the a short story. There's a challenge for you. Well, listen, there's so much to talk about, and I want to kick off and go back to your dad because um, you know, you're right, that period in his career where he was the only guy saying, this is going to change. There's so many echoes to today because there are people all around and the big debate is the dollar and hegemony and do we go back to a gold standard and is it a death of fiat? So I wonder, you know, conversations you had with your dad about that time and, you know, what the pushback was and then, 
I'm trying to get a sense of just how unlikely his scenario was in people's minds versus how unlikely any kind of change to the monetary system is today. So it's interesting. So I, I mean, my first, my first memories were after the peg had been broken. You know, he had bought his Alfa Romeo at the time and was sort of, you know, on a roll, right? Right. right. Uh, <laughs> you know, for frankly, I won't go into it, but he was on a roll. Let me put it that way. So I, I remember vividly when I was a kid, we were sort of driving around in his Alfa Romeo, believe it or not. And, and, you know, he would show me an orange and he would say, you know, 10 years ago, this orange cost a dime and now it costs 50 cents or whatever it was. What's changed? The, the orange or the money? So that was sort of learning about money on your on your dad's knee, as it were. So anyway, when the struggle was going on, I guess, and the debate was going on, it would have predated me. But, you know, so he, he he was a DS at the time, Dominion Securities, which is now RBC Securities, just to give you some more perspective. So he would have been the first guy in the DS uh, research department with a university degree. OK, let alone he had an engineering degree, but he was the first guy with a university degree, period. No one had university degrees back in the day. Again, I wasn't there, but put it this way, he didn't last that long at Dominion Securities. Apparently, his uh, his word was, as he put it to me, he says, Murray, you're going to have a very fine career, but it's going to be a fine career somewhere else. Right, right. So, uh, so you couldn't, you know, it was really unspeakable at the time to, to talk about the system as they knew it coming apart at the seams. Uh, he went on to a smaller uh, institutional broker here in Toronto and, and then started this firm back in 1984. So you know, he ended up doing OK, but there were things you couldn't speak about openly. Now you've got, you know, I mean, there's a fairly broad community of, of gold bugs, as it were. It's sort of it's in the drinking water. So it's certainly times have changed. Yeah. And, and another interesting facet of this particular part of the financial industry is the outsized qualifications that people have. You know, there aren't many brokers in other parts that have mining engineering degrees. You know, it's, it's something that, as you say, it's in your blood. And, um, you know, people in the gold industry or rather, I didn't say all of them, that's too much of a generalisation, but there are plenty of people in the industry like yourselves that actually are in the broking business, in the money business, but their background is rocks. It's rocks and dirt and, and actually understanding, really understanding the business that they're analysing, which is unusual in, in most industries, I find. I suppose you're getting more and more technical people in the field now. Most analysts are either geologists or engineers. I should say I go out of my way to learn as little geology as possible. Um, and as much about geologists as possible. So I would right. consider myself a geologist-ologist, <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty good at that. You know, how you read a geologist, are their feet buzzing or what have you. There's a lot more technical expertise in the sector than there was. I'm not sure if it's the technical expertise which guides or governs recommendations and thinking and sentiment. I think there's a whole bunch of other currents there which would dominate. But there's certainly a lot more expertise than there used to be. Well, so let's talk about... Gold. Let's talk about the sector itself. Let's talk about yep. the metal first, and then, we'll, and then we'll get into kind of the company side of things. You know, gold is something that, uh, as you say, that the gold bugs have this um, very kind of clear map for how gold is going to become a central part of the money system again. And um, for a long time now, they've kind of been frustrated with what the price action's done. Now, I personally don't fixate on the price like you and your dad with the orange. For me, it's a time question, not a question about anything to do with the validity of gold. Where do you see the state of gold as a metal right now, both supply and demand, sentiment, um, you know, you follow that stuff. How does the market look right now? So it's interesting. You asked like what it was like back in the 60s and how it would compare to now. And I think one of the main differences back then was that there was a very defined target, namely 35 bucks an ounce. And would it hold? 
the U.S. published their gold stocks on a regular basis, and they could you could see them decline throughout the 60s. Yeah, and it, and it became a, a, a very you know, classic speculative attack. Right? Will they hold the peg? The more you bought, the more difficult it was for them to, you know, hold the peg. And it, it was a run on the bank, but you could see the bank. Right? The bank was obvious, and it was a target, and they went after it. There's no target right now, and I think that's really interesting. Now that there's no peg, how do you measure anything? You measure gold against what? The dollar. But what do you measure the dollar against? How long is a meter? How hot is a degree? You know, we've lost any sort of external reference system. And I think that's fascinating. But to put it in perspective, yeah, I mean, people are disappointed with the gold price. If you were to, have, you know, describe the macro environment that we're in right now to anybody 20 years ago, like the prediction would have been everything would have fallen apart. The dollar would be, you know, confetti. You know, gold would be at whatever, you know, in, you know, 20,000 bucks or something like that. There'd been a major, you know, reboot of the monetary system. Because, I mean, if you look there, you've got money printing run amok, you know, geopolitical instability, you know, a loss of a, sort of a loss of confidence and faith in U.S. political leaders. You go from Trump to Biden, and you know, by comparison, what was happening in the '60s looks like you know strong leadership. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and that was a, was a very influential. The faith in, in America's leaders back in the '60s. You know, you know, Vietnam. I mean, they poured so many more people into Vietnam, and and that really undermined confidence. Right. Look what they're doing in Vietnam. Look what the U.S. is doing now around the world. And again, Vietnam rather pales in, in comparison. So, yeah, anyone 20 years ago would have looked at this and said, you know, it would have spiraled out of control. Yet here we are. I mean, you know, gold's moved up, but everyone remains far underweight, uh, you know, from a portfolio perspective. No one's lining up to buy it. It's not really in the headlines. They're not talking about the gnomes of Zurich. You could say that the interest is tepid from a sentiment perspective and also from a flow perspective. I looked this up last night because I thought it might come up. So when they went after the dollar back in the first run, which would have been in the late 60s, they were buying up to 100 tons a day. And the day they had to close on the Boeing Exchange, okay, for the first time in hundreds of years, yeah. okay, they bought 400 tons in a given day. Okay, the speckers had gone at 400 tons in a given day. And that's when the gold pool shut its doors and said, no must. By comparison, you know, a good year of inflows into the ETF maybe twice that, maybe 800 tons over a year. So the reason why gold is at higher is because not enough people are buying not enough gold, right? It hasn't started yet. And I think that has to do with, you know, there's no clear target out there. If there was a target, you know, and you could instigate a run on the bank, you know, perhaps it would stir the juices a little bit more avidly. But here we are. It is going to come, I, you know, at the end of the day, there's too much debt in Western economies at all levels, you know, government, corporate, household, relative to the economy's capacity to service it, let alone pay it back. That's sort of a given in, in our circles. It would be a given in more you know, reputable circles as well. Right. I mean, you speak to accounts where, you know, they're underweight gold and they're, you know, they're, they, they would never come out and say stuff like this. You know, they're you know, if you know, 40 years ago, they, they would have been wearing pocket watches, these sorts of guys, right? We all know it. You know, why buy gold now if you don't have to, right? We're, yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem as though we're there yet, right? But the problem is a given and, and, and widely accepted, if not widely spoken about. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the thing that always gives empirically, what always gives is the money. That's the thing that always goes. And, you know, you look in, in, in Western spheres, it's difficult to see the money going, you know, on a regular basis, certainly within our generation. But, 
looking outside the Anglo-American, you know, axis, as it were, it happens on a regular basis in South America and Eastern Europe and Asia, what have you. I mean, the, the first thing that goes is the money. And most people know that. In Peru, for example, everyone has two accounts. They've got a U.S. dollar account and they've got a Sole account. And they use Soles for taxis and cigarettes and, and, and beer. And you would never save in Soles. No. Right? You never keep your savings in the local currency. So, and that, that attitude is foreign within Anglo-American sphere, but, you know, not forever. Well, it's interesting because the thing that really emerged around the time that, the, that first the gold pool broke and then the, 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 the de facto pegged the dollar in 71 was, of course, inflation. And that changes an awful lot of things, right? And so it's fascinating to see that we've got this inflationary pulse now, but we've had it after such a long time that no one has any experience of this being prolonged. Everyone is still assuming it's sure. a short-term spike and assuming that it's going to go back down again. And, and I wonder how the conversation has changed for you around inflation. Have people started to look at this differently or is it still, ah, this is transitory? Um. Right now, there's a belief that, you know, the powers that be will manage it, Yeah. right? That they've got the tools and the toolbox. They haven't seen the tools fail yet. It's still very early in the move. And it's easy to attribute the inflation we're seeing to, you know, supply chains associated with COVID. Well, once that gets fixed up, you know, inflation will subside. There's the war issues. And then the, once those you get dealt with, you know, inflation will subside. It's plausible enough, isn't it? Right? Yeah. It's, you know, even we'll see what happens, whether people believe it or not. It's certainly plausible. And so, you know, there's no reason to panic or put it this way. If you start to panic, it's difficult to explain that to your chief investment officer why you're panicking, isn't it? You know, I think we'll see what happens when the economy starts to choke and we'll see when they blink. They have a tendency of blinking and we'll see what the reaction is there. How's the conversation changed in recent weeks and months as this problem has become more entrenched and more difficult to ignore? The people you talk to on a regular basis, how's their view of gold change? And, and are you seeing more people start to entertain this idea that, hey, you know, we, we may have something that down the track we're going to have to mitigate here? So it's really interesting. So most of the people we speak to are, are already sold on the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got a choir out there and, and they're all converted and, and we sing songs every day. <laughs> we bring out the hymn book <laughs> and we sing songs. And, and the mood out there is one of absolute ennui. We're like, you know, we shake our head, you know, we make ourselves a, you know, a cup of green tea and put on the nature music and just like, you know, try and figure out, you know, <laughs> what went wrong. Okay. There's a, everyone feels dispirited. Uh, you know, they, they, they wait forever for, you know, this to happen. It happens and, and, and no one cares. The pattern of flows you'll see, and this isn't universal, but it might be representative. You know, you'll get a sort of a Chinese water torture of redemptions, like bit by bit, but people just getting impatient. It's not working. I think Bitcoin stole a lot of thunder. The whole crypto thing, that's moving. This isn't sort of a Chinese water torture, sort of redemptions and dribs and drabs. Then you get a move and you get a slug in and then, you know, it stalls, turns around and pattern repeats. You look at multiples in the gold space and we can speak about this more because I find that fascinating. Um, But they would be at, you know, when I started in the business in the late 90s, like, you know, some guy at a big bank said, oh, investing in gold stocks is easy. You buy them at two times NAV and sell them at three times NAV, right? Rinse and repeat. Right. right. You know, so now things are trading. Many of these names trade, you know, at a discount to NAV. Multiples have compressed. People say, you know, some of these things are starting to yield interesting yields. And that speaks to a, 
you know, a real lack of interest in the sector. And it's frustrating for people. You know, when you make a great macro call, no one shows up to invest in it. Did you make a great macro call? Did you make call? a call? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, and, and that's, that would be the sentiment out there right now. So, so let's talk about those multiples. Let's talk about the companies themselves because, you know, you're right. They they are insanely cheap, um, but they have been for a while. So it's not as though you can say, oh, they're cheap. They're, they're, there's a track record here that they'll go back up to six, seven times. We don't have any recent evidence for that. From the company side of things, the companies you speak to, where are they in this? You know, where are we with exploration? Where are we with capital raising to fund projects, to fund expansion? Where does that sit right now? So it's interesting. So are gold stocks cheap? I think it's an interesting question. Um, you know, in the 90s, those were, I would say, sort of the boom time in the gold sector. Okay. There would be 35 people on a Barrett call. They have to limit questions, right? You know, they go for the hour and that was that. And you'd be lucky to get a question in. That doesn't happen anymore. You'd go to investor days and they'd have auditoriums and they were packed. Throughout that period, you had gold actually decline more or less. It traded flat or down. Yet there was a great deal of interest in the gold sector. Why was that? Well, you know, back in the 90s was a great age of discovery. You had South America open up. South America nationalized in the 70s and then sort of denationalized, as it were, 15 years or so later. And all this ground opened up. And you had some spectacular discoveries. You had Yanacocha, you had Purina. You know, Lima was booming with, with geos. There's some crazy stories there. You had uh, the great discoveries out of Nevada. The Asia opened up. You had Lahir. And these were 30 million ounce deposits with spectacular drill intercepts, right? And it was a period of growth and excitement and, you know, and razzle-dazzle, right? And so again, gold, gold price generally declined, but the money flowed in. Now you have somewhat the opposite effect. And there hasn't been a major discovery. And when I'm talking to major stuff, like, you know, 20 million plus ounces, which is a layup, as it were, tier one, quote unquote, there's certainly been a decade or so. Yet you have the gold price up and you have these things, cash flow, making money. And yet the interest is very, very tepid. So are gold stocks cheap? So right now, let's just say the point trades at 0.7 of NAV. So, so you invest 70 cents to get a buck back, you know, whenever they've mined out all their ore. It's discounted at 5%. Typically, you get your 5% and a, and a buck back, you know, after, you know, 10 or 12 years. Is that a good investment? It's certainly what investors were driven by back in the 90s when the money did flow in was that the NAV would grow. You'd find more stuff. You'd get a big discovery. There'd be riches at the surface. And that seems to be substantially absent in the narrative today. And does that explain the you know, compressed valuations? It may well be. I mean, I think if anything would wake the sector up, sure, another thousand bucks in the gold price would. But some genuine discoveries and some excitement in the sector would as well. If there's nothing like getting the juices flowing when the guy down the bar, like it's usually the asshole down the bar, right? Who didn't know his you know, his head from a hole in the ground, you know, has a twenty bagger on some genuine discovery, which you know turns into you know the ten million ounce type thing, and then you know that gets everybody else at the table too. And it's been a long time since that happened. But you know, it's interesting because what you described there, you know, I find fascinating this idea that you can buy something at point seven nav, you've got pretty close to a, a guaranteed profit as you like, but the juice in these oranges was always the potential upside, right? You, your base case, it's a value proposition, and you've got this embedded option that you may get this enormous growth out of it. You may get some extraordinary volatility to the upside. 
And that kind of investment, um, and I, I'll use air quotes for, as, as an investment, is exactly the kind of thing that people have been drawn to in recent years. You know, these ideas, yeah. these, these, these ideas that there's something with spectacular upside here, but those don't have the embedded fallback of, you know, money in the ground that you know is there that you can actually take out. So I've been fascinated to see how cheap gold stocks that have, you know, a fallback in them and potentially huge upside, I'm amazed that that's not the casino that more people have been wanting to play in in recent years. It, you know, we need some guy at the roulette table actually, you know, getting a win. And it's been a long time since we saw that win, right? And... It, there have been some odd wins, but it's been pretty anemic. And it's interesting. So you say 0.7, but these gold stocks are laden with risk. And, you know, for every win, you know, there might be five or 10 face plants. Yeah. Okay. And, and so that drives people away from the casino as well. Um, you know, we need to, we need to sort of, you know, reverse that ratio. So gold stocks are laden with risk. Like it, it's probably one of the riskiest things you can do. The pay dirt here is measured in parts per million. Yeah. You know, often hundreds of meters beneath the surface and away from view. They're always in faraway places, inaccessible, you know, and subject to the, the vagaries of foreign governments. You can't imagine, you know, more risk in a bowl of soup such as this. And yet we suggest to investors that they put a little bit of money in gold to de-risk their portfolios. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> So that's the iron of it all. And that's actually, I think, gone a long way towards guiding the actions of management. How do you take a very risky proposition and make it appear much less risky? I think this explains the rise of the royalty companies. You know, people want to buy exposure to gold without the risks inherent in gold mining. And they've done a, you know, a spectacular job there. You can't, I don't think anyone says they're cheap. But the reason why they're cheap is, is like, you know, you know, you can own a royalty company and not have to worry about like, you know, the Friday afternoon press release. Right. Right. Um, but even the bigger companies, I mean, it's it's tough to sell, you know, the Wild West proposition, even as the Wild West proposition has been historically where you make money in the gold sector. We at University Avenue here in Toronto, and that's where all the hospitals are up and down. And if you go up there and you can see all of these hospital wings named after more than a couple mining entrepreneurs. We won't go through the list, but like if you want to get your name on a hospital wing, the way to do it is to go to new places, okay, with fresh capital and perhaps some new technology, which is a risky proposition, but that's how you've made money in the sector. Look, there's the California gold rush when people crested the Sierra Madre, right? You made a lot of money there, didn't you, right? Uh, when you went down to South Africa, you made a lot of money there. You know, the jungles of Papua New Guinea, there were some spectacular finds there. You know, same with the, uh, uh, you know, down in Peru in the early days. Okay. These are risky propositions. And that is somewhat antithetical to the rationale for holding gold as a safe haven, as a portfolio de-risker. So there's some tension there. On the one hand, the companies, you know, realize that uh, the big companies would have cut their exploration budgets a fair bit over the last years. Exploration is seen as an expense. It's accounted for as an expense. And the idea there was, is, you know, there have been a push to, you know, maximize margins and what have you. So there would be some tension there. And the genuine value creation is by, by going out and taking risks. There's at the same time, there's a huge motivation to, to be a, an unrisky company, to be a sure thing. So 
I think that explains a lot of what we've seen in the uh, in, in the sector over the last few years. Well, let's talk about those management because I think the point you make is a really, really important one that, that not enough people really think about because you know, by nature, uh, over the years, the mining executives have been risk takers. You know, they've been the guys who've gone out and they've taken on these projects that people have told them, yeah, there's no way you're going to get that into production. It's almost like, I'll show you. And so there's this tremendous culture that goes right through the industry of yes. taking risks and going to places where people tell you you're a fool and, and finding that great discovery. And what we've seen in the last probably 15 years, I guess, maybe 20, is that being punished by capital. Capital yep. has been punishing them. Have they had to change their ways to their own detriment now? And what does it take for those animal spirits to come back? I mean, I can't imagine it'd be much, but it must take something to get them back. Yeah, that's a very good point. If um, I've got to be careful about talking about names on air sure. here, but but we can we can talk certainly about some history. And, and one of the great stories of the last cycle was Rangold, was Bristow and Rangold, right? You know, he was one of the very few companies that well outperformed uh, the gold price. Most companies underperformed the gold price. And yes, you know, he got things into production and yes, he operated very well, but he made his mark by taking some huge risks. He bought the BHP sub in, in Mali, which was like, it was, the gold price was 260 or something like that. And one of the operations was not working and bleeding money. And but there was this spectacular deposit there, flat line, you know, three grams or whatever it was, you know, nice and thick. And he looked at that and he went for it. And uh, you know, that was the start of Rangold in earnest. And he parlayed that to the next one again, working in you know places where we would never want to send our kids for summer jobs, working with the governments, and that turned into you know spectacular returns. Now it's much tougher that he's running Barrick, isn't it? I think there's an inherent conflict. The investors, you know, Paulson, you know, a few years ago, when we went down to the big gold show in Denver and with some other investors and said, you know, we demand reform of the sector. We want to see capital returned. We want to see far more discipline. And the gold companies, to their credit, they listened. You know, they're now returning a lot more capital to investors. There's been no more crazy M&A, which we saw in the previous cycle, reckless M&A. Investors are getting what they asked for, for the most part, at least according to the, you know, what was asked for, you know, a few years ago. So there you go. You know, you've got companies trading at a discount to NAV. It's a fairly dull sector. The risk taking is way down. It's, <laughs> they got what they asked for. I think at some point, you know, things have to change. You know, you've got a reserve depletion issue. The reserve life index of, you know, the, the, the big companies, maybe sort of 10 to 12 years, maybe declining by half, because they do replace some of it, but declining by maybe, you know, six months every year. But it now takes 10 years to permit something and to put it into production. So the long-term planners within the companies are looking at this and there's a problem. So I, I should also say, you know, it really was easier back in the 90s, wasn't it? You know, South America opened up. Uh, they liberalized their economies. They liberalized their mining systems back then. And they invited people to come in. And in everybody went. Uh, it was the same with you know, the Pacific Rim. It was the same with West Africa. One of the hard problems right now is that we're just plain running out of world, right? Right, right. No more, right? I mean, California, the, all the gold there is gone for the most part. South America, I understood from a driller down there that they're, this is a, this is a few years ago, but they're no longer drilling for gold because it's tough to find. Instead, they're drilling for copper and they hope they find some gold with the copper. The easy heap leach stuff, you know, has been all swept up, dirt farmed away. So what's left? 
what's left is not nearly as attractive. A big company recently decided to revitalize a project, the Badlands of Pakistan. There's no doubt one of the areas in the world which really hasn't you know, seen a modern day rush would be the stands, right? The Kazakhstans, the Kyrgyzstans over there. I think there's, you know, and of course, Russia. But that's not nearly as friendly now, is it? It's not nearly as friendly as Peru or uh, Chile. So it's a hard problem facing the industry. But it's fascinating to me because everything you say is absolutely correct. And yet everything you say is conducive towards higher prices, right? I mean, everything you say says the price of this stuff should go up. And it hasn't, you know, and it doesn't. I I completely agree. And in gold bug circles, you know, there's some arguments or discussions about what makes gold go. And it's the stocks crowd versus the flow crowd. Right. And, you know, some guys say that, oh, you know, mine supply doesn't matter. And I'm going, yeah, mine supply matters. You know, it's just like any other supply. So the miners... They're four sellers. They do 3,000 tons a year, okay? And they're four sellers. They have to meet payroll every two weeks, okay? And 3,000, but that's up from about 1,200 tons a year 30 years ago. It's been a huge increase in primary supplies of gold. And has that retarded the advance in gold prices? I think it has to have. You know, in the absence of supply is the same thing as demand, so people say, oh, you know, 800 tons into the, you know, the bullion ETFs, that's a great year. That should really move prices. And it does. But 800 tons subtracted from primary supplies would have the same effect. You think yeah. it's a simple argument. I'm not sure it's well accepted. But yes, at some point, you are going to get some you know, supply constriction in a meaningful way. And, and I think that, you know, right now there's a sense that, oh, you know, there's lots of gold out there. Right. And if we need to buy it, we can buy it. Right. There's no hurry. There's no FOMO in the market yet. Yeah. Right. And as you know, nothing drives prices like a bit of FOMO. I think the gold companies are to a certain extent to blame here. They concede that long term supply is going to be a struggle, not with their company, of course, but with right. all the other companies who are going to have a problem with it. Right. But I think it would really help the sector to say that looking out, how much can we realistically, like you know, what, what's everybody's 10-year production profile look like? And get it out there. There's no sense of scarcity. And I think it's a lot more scarce than you know, people realize. If you want to go buy a billion dollars worth of gold right now, it'll take you more than a day to do that, right? And you will have some market impact. And of course, a billion dollars today is just nothing, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. Trump change. But buying a billion dollars worth of gold, you're going to have to work that order. So, and it's interesting. I mean, the gold that is to come 20 years out, it's in all the wrong places, right? I mean, yeah. you know, from a sort of Western perspective, you know. So, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. You know, when I talk to executives in the mining space, and I find them fascinating people to talk to, you know, they've lived interesting lives. Yeah. They are risk takers and they, they are in control of some of the most complicated, complex and difficult businesses in the world to try and manage. And yet I'm always curious as to why so many of them seem to view gold as another commodity. It's just like every other commodity, it's ounce in the ground, we get the ounce out, we have a margin on it, we sell it. And I've never really had a satisfactory answer as to why these guys don't realize that gold is different. Gold is money. And so 
taking gold out the ground and finding a way to build a treasury from your gold to actually own some of what you put out the ground and not restrict supply, but not just throw every ounce you can out into the marketplace. Have you had any of these conversations with any of the execs to find a different way of mining and doing business in what is a very different commodity? I'm not sure it's it's uniform. I mean, there's certainly some executives out there that do see gold as money and do understand it's different and, and don't just switch into copper when copper is the flavor of the day. Right, right, right. Which, which, which some executives, you know, are inclined to do. How much copper can we mine and still stay a gold company, right? <laughs> that equation has been thought about in more than one boardroom. The sector as a whole consumes capital. I mean, it would be better now, but as a whole, the sector consumes capital. If it has to raise money, then it has no money left over at the end of the day to keep in treasury. It has to sell the gold. You know, I, I guess of late, the companies are a fair bit better. And, you know, on a current basis, they, they you know, they, they may be able to drag on their sales. I think there's some accounting issues involved. The CFOs who generally drive the bus, they're, they're the most, they're, they're a very conservative bunch. Yeah. Um, you know, a CFO has never been promoted for taking risks and prevailing, right? CFOs only get fired. So, no, for sure, for sure. You know, some guys from the buy side have asked the same question. You know, why don't you drag on your sales and see if you can build up a, you know, a kitty? Um, or, or, or issue a, a, an interest-bearing bond backed by gold reserves, right? I mean, there, there are so many things that I would imagine would be accretive that don't seem to be entertained in, in what seems to me from the outside to be this race to get as much out of the ground and get it out the door as fast as possible. Most mining costs are fixed costs. Okay. Yeah, if you have yeah, a yeah. bad quarter, the grade goes down, you know, you, you're not going to shrink your workforce. Gold miners mine tons. They don't mine gold. They mine tons. That's where the costs go into the tons. If you have a weak production quarter, it generally is a weak financial quarter. So once you've sunk all this capital into your plant and all the engineering behind it and, you know, gone and hired everybody, there's a strong economic incentive to make the most of it. So, you know, hence the rush to maximize yeah, yeah. production. No, it's interesting. So one idea which did come up a few years ago with, with a company that we knew was, why not give shareholders an option to take, you know, dividends in gold? And they actually got it through the system in terms of they set it up with the proxy materials or what have you, and you could take the dividends in gold. And this was at the behest of, of investors and, um, you, know, why, you know, we want the gold, you know. Not a single person elected to take the dividends Isn't in gold. Isn't that right? That's fascinating. Yeah. The system doesn't work for it. They have no gold account. There's no bucket to hold it in the financial system. Perhaps that changes down the road, but, uh, you know. Anyway, so they did that for, you know, for a couple of quarters or a few years or something like that. And then it was like, you know, they scrolled off. Look, uh, you know, some companies have tried to, you know, you know, you know, drag on their gold sales. I'm not sure how much credit they get for it. And I sort of understand it. At the end of the day, gold miners are, their job is to find, develop, and mine gold efficiently. If the investors choose to take the dividend and invest in gold, that's their prerogative. That may be the best way to do it. You know, everyone stay in their lane. But that was the argument against hedging. You know, why don't you hedge? You know, right, exactly, um, yeah. And it's like, well, look, if you want to hedge your gold exposure, you go ahead. Our job is to go find, develop, and mine gold. If you don't like the gold price, then probably A, you shouldn't be owning a gold stock, but B, you know, you're welcome to go, uh, you know, buy the, you know, buy the equities and short the middle. So, but, you know, the average shareholder base now, one would imagine, um, and again, it was pure speculation on my part, but given the lack of interest in the sector, the lack of 
real meaningful hot money. I mean, there's always hot money in the gold sector, of course, because everyone's got a story and everyone thinks of it as a get-rich-quick <laughs> scheme. But one would imagine that you, for the most part, certainly in the majors, you're never going to have a better chance to have a shareholder base that is patient capital, right? Because you, all the hot money guys have really been flushed out after time after time after time of expecting there to be a run. It feels to me as though the people that own shares in gold companies now aren't mainly comprised of the, hey, this thing's going to double in the next three months, guys. So I just I just feel like there's a dialogue to be had between owners and investors at this point in the cycle that says, hey, listen, okay, here we are. What can we do between the two sides to really maximise the potential return on capital here? You're in this stock, not because you think it's going to double next week, but because you believe in the long-term value of owning gold equities. We're in the business of building a long-term gold equity company. How do we represent those two interests in a mutually beneficial way? I think there, there is that conversation happening. I mean, I think companies are listening to shareholders as much as they ever have. You're seeing the companies trip over themselves to trumpet their return to shareholders in terms of dividends and buybacks. Yeah. I think that's what investors have asked for, at least the big guys. And I think that's what they're getting. It remains that there's so much short-termism in the sector. And as long as something else is moving, it's very easy for the generalists to ignore the gold sector. It has a terrible reputation. It's lost a lot of people a lot of money over the years. And you need a good reason to put money there. Now, the gold investors, yes, there's a steady base of people who invest in gold, you know, the gold funds and the private investors. And that's a fairly, you know, unchanging composition. What makes the gold stocks move is when, you know, the generalists allocate a third of 1% of their fund into gold. Right. right? When the guy in London picks up the phone and says, I need a billion dollars of this stuff and do it today. That's what gets these things moving. As long as something else is moving, it's easy not to do that. And so far, other things have been moving, right? I mean, we've had a bit of a you know pullback in the you know, general markets over the last few months, but then gold didn't go, right? You know, it's so 2,000 bucks, here we go. And then it sort of turns around on itself. And then it's, I told you so, it's not working. So I think for these stocks to move, it's going to help if, you know, they're the only things that move. And that makes sense. I mean, gold mining is a very, very tough business. Gold itself is an inert piece of metal, which doesn't do that much. You know, it's sort of an investment of last resort. It works. And this is what certainly what happened in the 70s. You know, it works when, when few other things work. Right, right, right. And, and, you know, we, we really haven't had that yet. I think it's coming, but it hasn't come yet. So before we wrap up, let's just um, talk about the future, what, what, you, what you think people should be looking at and for, you know, in the, in the next kind of six months or, or even a longer view if you think if inflation changes the picture. When you talk to your clients about, you know, the next six months, what's the kind of outlook you're painting for them? Well, most of our clients, you know, we sort of, we, from a macro outlook, we all kind of agree. It's like, you know, it's a you know, heated agreement. Um, <laughs> and again, it's just lamenting, you know, we, you know, we put on the nature music in the background and like, you know, console each other for the most part, you know, we, what gold stocks move? What are the characteristics of gold stocks that do move? And, and some have moved. The exploration front is fascinating, okay? Because there's very little exploring that's actually happening. Most people are like buying projects that didn't make it last cycle, okay, either because of grade or metallurgy or something, yeah. right? They didn't make it over the line. And, and you know, but now the gold price is 500 bucks higher and everything looks a little bit better and they redrill them out again. That's most of the exploration going on, okay? 
and I, I don't know if you can call that expiration or not, they're, you know, you know re-christianing of retreads. What seems to be working in the expiration space is bling bling. It's really interesting there. You've got most of the money goes into very, very few of the names, and it's a huge skew. Most of it's driven by promotion and hype, and we'll see what happens over the long term, but certainly grade and margins are, you know, go up. If you can find a modestly sized deposit with good grade, attractive logistics and technical aspects, you know, no red flags on the metallurgy, it will catch attention. And especially if it's fresh. Retreads are a tougher sell. I mean, if anybody were to find the 10, 20 million ounce, that would just blow everybody's minds. We'll see what happens there. But a modest, you know, if you can find a fresh 3 million ounces somewhere with decent grade, low strip, no problems in the metallurgy, that'll turn heads. From a producer perspective, it's interesting. The companies that have done well have been able to show high returns on their marginal investments. So we don't know the cost of finding Gold. We know the cost of you know, looking for gold, we know the cost of finding gold. When a company can deploy capital at the margin and generate returns from it, it attracts investment. It's as though it sort of breathes life into these names and tells a story of longevity and prosperity into the future. If you've got a company with good margins now and with an exploration story, those have tended to do quite well. They're not that many of them, but uh, uh, those are the names that seem to be working. Are we likely to see M and A? Because you know, ironically, that the fact there's been no M and A, and the we fact saw a little bit a this lot- morning. Um, yeah, there'll probably be some more consolidation. Usually, a little bit, you know, triggers a little bit more. It triggers a little bit more. Yeah. When times are dull, it's usually a good time to do M and A. Unfortunately, they tend to do M and A when juices are flowing and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's at the wrong time. But but now it's actually a decent time when everyone's you know yeah. sort of. Half asleep at the wheel. I'd like it would be nice to see some more of that. Um, uh, it would be nice to see some more targeted MA, like companies with specific focused on, you know, this part of the world, this type of mining, that company's focused on that part of the world with that type of mining and that kind of profile, as opposed to some of these companies which have a little bit of, you know, everything all around the world. And you wonder what the rationale for existing is. Yeah. Um, so maybe you'd like to see some companies broken up too, you know, buy a company and, you know, piece it off, right? To make it a more rational fit. A lot of the, the way these companies got built is to, uh, I guess, appease the rules of investing, namely with indexes. Right, right, You needed right. to get big enough to get in the index, which attracts, you know, the robot flows, which are a huge problem in the, in the industry, but to attract the robot flows to get bigger yet, to lower your cost of capital, to give you the paper to do yet another acquisition. So people chase size, okay, willy-nilly, and put together these sort of Frankenstein-type companies, which had no real rationale, except to get big, to get higher multiples, and uh, lower your cost of capital. And now, of course, you know, in the long term, that doesn't really work because, you know, there's lesser efficiencies running these companies all around the world. And as a result, their financial performance, um, you know, gets degraded. And, you know, that, that shiny multiple they once had, you know, is, is, is now a not so shiny discount. So yeah, maybe reverse the process. That would be interesting. Well, Doug, look, it's been a fascinating hour. And I know we couldn't talk about specific socks, but let people know how they can get in touch with you and find out more and, and, and maybe can open up a dialogue and talk about specific stocks with you. Because, I, I, you know, as I say, I think this is going to be a very interesting next phase in the precious metal space. And, um I think it would behoove people to have someone like you with experience at the wheel 
to help them guide through it. So tell people how they can uh, get in touch with you. Um, I, we're, we're based in Toronto. We've got a phone number there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I, I generally tweet about things that I feel passionately about, but don't know that much about. Um, <laughs> you know, about fields of, you know, apart from mining and, and, and financial things. Uh, at Douglas Pollitt, two L's, two T's. You know, look us up. We're here every day. You know, just give us a call. Uh, you can find my email address readily enough. And um, we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Doug, listen, it's been a long time getting this together. I'm, I'm grateful for your patience and I'm grateful for your wisdom and, and your time. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you so much, Grant. That was a pleasure. A lot of fun. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Ah, uh, great stuff. Now, look, the gold industry is a fascinating one in which to be involved. And guys like Doug, with a real grounding in all the various aspects of the business, are invaluable resources when precious metal stocks have their inevitable day in the sun. That day may, I guess, be fairly close at hand, though there have been many false dawns for precious metals investors, it has to be said. Time will tell, I guess, but Doug is a guy whose knowledge is going to be incredibly useful when that day does arrive. So I'm delighted to have had this chance to put him on people's radar. That's all from me for another episode. I'll be back again soon. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.